Hey everyone, it's Tom Crowds and on this episode of the Your Life, Your Term show, I sit down with Mike DeZormo, who is a very long time member of the Rockstar team, super great guy, and we go through some of the real estate data that is often not discussed, 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 and the reason that we do that is we can't find this information in an easily accessible form for ourselves. So sometimes we're looking at population numbers, the economic numbers, both in Canada and globally to see how it impacts the Bank of Canada and interest rates here in Canada in Canada and how that'll affect our properties. So part of the reason for us doing this episode is because we like talking about this stuff and we really don't see it discussed in this manner in very many places. So this is our attempt at breaking down the last big real estate crash here in Canada. The last big and the only big one, which was in 1990. If you're younger than like my age, which is 46, you probably have no clue about this, but I remember it very vividly because it had a huge impact on our family at that time. So we break down that crash, and the reason that we're breaking it down is just so that there's no surprises, so that if there's ever a future crash, you kind of know what to expect because of lessons we've learned from a previous crash. So that's why we're talking about it. We're not saying there's a crash that is coming or it's imminent or anything like that. We just want to learn. We want to be prepared. So that's why we talk about that. And then we talk about the 2007-2008 U.S. real estate crash and we draw some comparisons between the two so we can learn from that as well. And Mike um, talks about some of the latest stuff that he's seeing on the streets, the rent prices, the action, what he's seeing at different price points. So we kind of melt all that together in a discussion on the current state of the real estate market because it's a question that we ask ourselves all the time is that can we be facing a crash here in Ontario? Are we at that point? Could it happen? So this is just our way of exploring this topic. So hopefully you enjoy this and pick up a few goodies. I think you will. And if you you're listening to this and you want to check out real estate investing for yourself, the number one thing we get feedback on besides the books that we give away for free would be the class that we give here in our Oakville offices. You can grab a seat for that class. It's a 90 minute introduction to real estate investing from our rockstar perspective. We share the strategies that we are using right now with investors all over the Golden Horseshoe here in Ontario. You can grab a seat for that class at CanadianRealEstateTraining.com. So you, the next dates are published on that website as well. The details actually will will come to you when Jenny or Anthony from our office confirm your seat. So you can go and grab a seat at CanadianRealEstateTraining.com. Those classes are always full, so you need to grab a seat if you want to get in on the, on the next one. And CanadianRealEstateTraining.com is the URL, 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 the URL to get your seat. With that, let's get on with the show. Are you ready to live life on your terms? Is it time to take charge? Real estate, business building, the economy, health and nutrition, and more. It's the Your Life, Your Term Show with Tom and Nick Carazza. Are you ready? Let's go. Okay, Mike, we are live. So before we begin, I just want to, uh, we're recently, if you're listening to this, you should know we're both recently back from Mexico. A guy on the team, JP Hunt, got married in Mexico. Uh, myself and my wife, Carol, and Mike and his wife, Sarah, and Nick and his wife, Diana, we all went down there to be part of that wedding. And apparently there's way more tequila brands in Mexico than we were even aware <laughs> of. <laughs> and I did not know this. I'm very used to, I mean, you. it's not like I deal with wine sommeliers, but you know, the guy who comes around a nice restaurant and he's the expert in wine or basically who tries to upsell you to buy expensive bottles of wine that you really shouldn't be buying. That's the way I look at these guys. But have you ever heard of a tequila sommelier? No. I, that was the, that <laughs> no. Was the first time. So when we were, we were at lunch and some guy comes up to, uh, actually, you guys were at lunch before me. I think you guys were already talking about the tequila. Now, what happened? You guys were at lunch. Yeah. Then I got there. And we said, let's think, sample the tequila. I think so. Yeah. Or your brother started with that. Yeah. One of you guys. Did. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't and, me. And then if you, if you've heard us talk about Don Julio tequila before, you should know there's levels. There's Don Julio. There's like the silver. There's like uh, maybe just a regular gold, but then there's the, uh, how do you say it? Rap, uh, 1942, the Real. Yeah. There's the 1942 and the Real. And before that, there's the Anejo and there's like one other one that I'm forgetting right now. So there are like five levels, but the highest is the Real and the next highest is the Don Julio 1942, which I have right here. Mm -hmm. And the Real, we had never really seen, we hadn't tasted before. Never even saw that bottle. Yeah, the bottle's beautiful. Andrew yeah. has one actually. Right, so I, right. Yeah, yeah, but but it's be, it's beautiful. And we bought the bottle, and uh, security came over to take a video of it being opened because I guess some people lie about it being opened, and uh, don't. Uh, what are they doing? I guess that was the entire staff of the restaurant as well. Yeah. <laughs> 
I came over to see that. <laughs> and then you start offering one of the guys a tequila shot. You're going to get the freaking guy fired. No, to be clear, I think you did. No, uh, this one, I swear, I swear no, it was yeah? you. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Maybe. I think I encouraged it afterwards, <laughs> okay. but then I think you had some common sense and you're like, hey, you're going to get the guy fired. Y- yeah, correct. Yes. Um, which never occurred to me. And as soon as we said that, he did back off. He's like, yeah. But did you see his eyes light up? Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to share it with all of us. <laughs> but uh, that's it, their gold. That is their gold. And that Don Julio Real, if you ever get a chance to have some of that, um, take it. <laughs> anyway, this is a very serious podcast. This is not a podcast on tequila. So uh, over the last few weeks, we've just been asking ourselves, we're like, okay, we, we've been talking a lot about the population growth in Ontario and all the positives that are going on in Canada and Ontario. Um, and uh, we started uh, asking ourselves, what would it take for the real estate market to crash? And, and Mike, I don't know about you, but the way I kind of break it down is I, I say, okay, the two things that I can identify that would definitely impact the real estate market are interest rates and access to credit. Correct. Yeah. So the, if, if one of those two things go, so like interest rates would have to spike up and, or, or access to credit would have to be diminished greatly. Mm-hmm. And it seems to us in Canada, um, interest rates, if you're not aware, um, we just had... Uh, one of the mortgage brokers we work with, Dave Butler, come in here and told us that fixed rates in Canada are uh, below variable rates. Mm-hmm. So interest rates are coming down at the present moment. Right. And um, the one of our members actually got a mortgage at an interest rate of 3.03 for a three-year fixed. Mm-hmm. So you're able to get fixed rates, mortgages. So, so interest rates are not going... I guess my whole point is interest rates are not going up. Interest rates are actually falling right now. Mm-hmm. And that fix being low, lower than the variable right now. Yeah. You know what? Do you know, and I don't know if you know this, do you know if, you can, if you're if you on a variable rate mortgage right now, if the fixed is lower than your variable, are the banks letting you lock in at a rate lower than the current rate that you have? That's a good question. Because that's worth, like if you're on a variable mm-hmm. right now of like, you know, and your variable is like 3.4 or something mm-hmm. like that, Yeah. and you can get a fixed less than it, you might want to consider just calling the bank, seeing if you can fix it yeah. less. Right? It's first time, yeah. In a, it, Decade, yeah, we've never, yeah, never seen this, this kind of thing. Yeah. So that's going on, um, and then access to credit on access to credit. So what what we find really interesting in dealing with mortgage brokers on a lot of investor type business is that we get some insights into the banks. And what's interesting is um, which mortgage program um, did we learn about? There's a mortgage program right now where the banks weren't. Oh, it was um, mortgage uh, loan person uh, plus improvements. Purchase plus improvements. Sorry, thank you. Purchase yeah. plus improvements. Mm-hmm. Um, just a few years ago, it was much more difficult to get a purchase plus improvements mortgage. Now, we're hearing that a lot more banks are willing to offer investors a purchase plus improvements mortgage. Yeah. And to me, this is laughable because this is the way the banks, when the ba- when the government of Canada is trying to make uh, access to mortgages more difficult, like in January 2018 when all the mortgage rules tightened up, the banks on the back end agree with everything the government does. They always look like they agree at the media. But then on the back end, they go and figure out other ways to give out more lending. Right. And one of those other ways is mortgage plus improvements. Mm-hmm. So this is a way where more credit gets flushed into the market, not less. Yeah. Like, with easy money and credit, yeah. consequence, is, consequence is higher inflation. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like we're putting... We, so like it's, it's kind of like... We have lower rates and mortgages, although we change some of the front end rules, if you're somehow able to qualify under the rules, the banks aren't offering you less of a mortgage. They're willing to offer you more mortgage. <laughs> yeah. Right? So in my mind, I'm like, what would it actually take right at this point for the real estate market to collapse when access to credit exists? It's harder to get definitely, but it, it exists. Mm-hmm. Right. Interest rates are low. Mm-hmm. And then you got to look at demand, but the population growth in this area continues to exceed all the projections yeah so like i don't understand which factors it will take for a realistic correction to happen like it is going to have to be like a global financial crisis that also affects canada to like maybe lock up access to credit Mm -hmm. because if there's a global financial crisis then the canadian banks would be pulled into that and then they might kind of close the doors and say hey we're not giving loans right now and then i can see property prices coming down so, and then, so my question, I guess, to you, Mike, is for everyone listening who's not active in the market, what are you seeing in the market? Like, are you seeing, where do you see price? For, so describe the property kind of 
prices, the locations, and what are you seeing out on yeah. the streets right now? But just to go back to even in 2008, when we did have a global financial crisis, the stuff that we're typically looking at, these starter homes, they were really not impacted at all. So even if there were something to come down the pipeline, how affected how affected do you think these starter yeah, home no, it, properties it, it, would be yeah I, it, it's a good point because you're right we didn't we hardly we basically plateaued mm-hmm. it was like an 18 month window where things were kind of sort of flat right and then right. we just kept going up again yeah. so i guess i'm just talking about like a devastating one yeah where the canadian banks are just like oops we invested in a whole bunch of crap somewhere and we got pulled in because you're right that one was big yeah um and for those of you who, who don't know, during the U, the last financial crisis, if you didn't monitor that closely, other markets did get greatly affected. Canada didn't get that affected, but places like Japan, like the Japanese stock market started to get affected because when there was cash calls on the US, uh, like if hedge funds had cash calls where people were pulling their market out, uh, money out, uh, investors in Japan were confused why their stock market was starting to go down. Mm-hmm. But the reason their stock market was starting to go down as part of the U.S. housing crisis was when the stock market was affected in the U.S., hedge funds had to go to places that were good, like the Japanese market, and sell what they had over there to serve the cash calls that they were having in North America. Mm -hmm. So it like inadvertently brought down the Japanese stock market during that time. So this is how things ripple around the world. But you're right. Even in Canada, right next door here, we were hardly affected. Yeah, it's such a supply and demand crisis right now. Um, th- uh, three, four weeks ago, I was filling a property in Stony Creek that I bought almost a decade ago. So it was, I think, nine years to be exact. When I first put tenants in there, it was $1,600 a month in rent. I've had a couple tenants since, but this uh, last time I filled it, filled it for $2,150 a month. Um, se- I think it was seven or eight families came out. I wish I had seven or eight homes at the time that were available. But uh, all of them were decent families. You obviously go with the best one. But within 24 hours, I had uh, these seven families through, uh, applications processed, leases signed, money collected, and it was done within 24 hours. This particular family that took it is actually a three-generational family. So it was mom and dad, their daughter, her husband, and their 28-month-old daughter. And it's just what the young couple were paying for their particular house that they were at and what the parents were paying, they just thought it'd be best to come together and have a bit more room together. And the parents would obviously help out with the grandkid as the husband and wife are now working. Four streams of income coming in for that house now as well. So that that rent price in nine years has gone up 36%. So almost 4% per year, despite our 1.8 that we're, we're, you know, we're 1.82 yeah. that we've been allowed to do over the past decade. Yeah. That, so uh, just so all the people that came out to the house, could you get a sense where this one was in Brantford, you said? No, Stony Creek. Sorry, Stony Creek Stony Mountain. Creek. Stony Creek yeah. Mountain. So if, you, if, if you're from Toronto proper and you don't know Stony Creek, it's just kind of like just a little bit down the highway from, it's part of Hamilton, but it's mm-hmm. like at the far end of Hamilton as you're driving on your way to Buffalo yeah. uh, down the QEW. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious, was everybody looking at the home? Could you get a sense? Where were they from? Was everyone from Stony yeah, Creek? Yeah, so good question. Yeah, so um, a lot of them were actually from Stony Creek. Hamilton, surrounding area, St. Catharines. Um, but prior to that, yes, I'd get more people from closer to the GTA, Etobicoke, Toronto. Like that's not unheard of. And I'm sure I would have come across that if I showed it a couple more times. I just showed it that one time. And okay. That was it. It was done. That, so that's what I'm curious. So you are seeing people from the Toronto area renting out in places like Stony Creek. A hundred percent. We have investors in St. Catharines filling their properties with couples from Toronto that are making the daily commute. Yeah, it's happening. Yeah, and there was what are they doing? Daily commute to what? Aldershot, Burlington, Go train station stop there, and then hopping on. I the think go? that's their best bet right now. Yeah, until that Go train line increases yeah, out, out out the way to Niagara. Yeah, got yeah. it. Okay, okay. And then what? I'm just curious since we're talking about this. Yeah. What are you seeing in the market right now? Because the first January, if you don't know the real estate market, you haven't been a part of it for a little while. January, February was pretty much crickets. No, mm-hmm. like it was pretty quiet, especially when the weather really got bad yeah. there in February. Yeah. Things were almost standstill. Right. Not not a lot of new listings came up. Mm-hmm. Not a lot of people were out there looking to buy. Yeah. Um, yeah. But then now you told me something. It's probably been about five weeks ago now or four weeks ago where you were seeing some stuff that shocked me. Can you describe yeah, it? We're, it's, it's getting busy again. So inventory's coming up. But as the inventory's coming up, it's not staying on the market long. A um, couple days at best, multiple offers across the board around so, southern Ontario. Yep. So what cities are you seeing the multiple offers? Uh it's almost every city now. 
No way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On okay. something decent, So call right? out the city so, so everyone can uh, hear it. Cambridge, Kitchener, Hamilton, London. London and Kitchener are very fierce for, for multiple offers. London? Yeah, yeah. On student rentals in London? No, a single family. Who's, yeah. student, who's student rentals, multiple? there's typically not too many multiple offers because that's a specific demographic. That's an investor now specifically that's going after that property. Yeah, but on the single family homes, it's just these families trying to get in and they'll always, you know, outpay what an investor would pay. So we're not usually typically losing offers to another investor. It's another family beat us. So last night we had one in Belleville, two and a half hours away from <laughs> Toronto, <laughs> going east. That were There were nine offers on that property. Mind you, this one was a single family Wait, home. Is, Belleville's yeah. two and a half hours from here in Oakville. Yeah. Not two and a half hours from Toronto. So two hours from Toronto. Is it really that far in Belleville? It, it is a hike. There's a Swiss chalet I always stop at in Belleville. Is that really right. two hours out of the city? <laughs> I always stop at this one Swiss chalet yeah. in Belleville. I have a home inspection there Wednesday. I'm debating if I should go to Montreal on my way. Look <laughs> <laughs> around Montreal. Yeah. Listen, Mike, the Habs aren't in the playoffs, okay? There's no need to be going to Montreal. There's no need to be bringing up the name Montreal, okay? I know your last name is French last name, but we don't need to be talking about Montreal, okay? Um, but yeah, um, the benefit of two and a half uh, hours east of here is property prices, so they're a little less. So this particular home was listed. The one that we did get, 280, we got it for 260. This is the home inspection that we're going to. On okay, Wednesday. you got to describe it. When you say yeah. $280,000 yeah. for someone in Toronto. So everyone outside of the city thinks that's pretty normal that you can yeah. buy stuff like that. Right. But people in Toronto, when you say you can buy something for 280, they think you're for straight sure. up lying. Yeah, yeah, So yeah. can you just describe what, yeah. what you're buying? Three bed, one bath bungalow. Uh, garage or no garage? Driveway up the side. Uh, this one, no garage driveway up the side. That's right. Okay. Yeah. Lot size, frontage. Yeah, 50 by 100. Yeah, yeah okay. Typically still a good size. And then the intent with that three bedroom, one bedroom, uh, sorry, three bedroom, one bath is to turn it into a six bedroom, two bathroom student rental, and it would cash flow over about $1,300 a month. There's a college out there called Loyalist. Uh, 3,000 students, roughly the Loyalist? same. Yeah. Loyalist? Yeah. Oh, I had not, I'm yeah. only laughing. It sounds like maybe like a cult yeah. or something. <laughs> you better be loyal. Right. Loyalist? Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. I feel if anyone's going there, I meant no disrespect right. whatsoever. I just know I've never heard of loyalists. Yeah. So much like the student population of um, Laurier and Brantford, it's the uh, same, similar, 3,000 people. But you're buying a property for $200,000 less than you would pay in Brantford. So $280,000 uh, property, and then you're renting it out for, you You said, sorry, but I didn't add, a, add it up in my head. Either 450 plus or $500 inclusive. And how many rooms? It'll be a six bedroom. It's a three bedroom, one bath home. Now it's a single family home. Yeah, no, but you said yeah. six bedrooms. So you're renting yeah. this out for what? Just under three thousand, or roughly three thousand a month. I know it's inclusive yeah. utilities, right? And the purchase price is two eighty. Correct. That's the one that's percent. One, rule that's it. That yeah. we never talk about. That's right. So if you're a real estate investor listening to this, the one percent rule is discussed in a lot of books. Where a lot of uh, books, especially U.S. books, will teach you it's a good investment. If one percent of, if you buy a house and one percent of the value of the house is uh, coming up to you in rent, then it's uh, it's a win. But we kind of dismissed that like about fifteen years ago because you can never find properties at the 1% rule, but this is actually something here. This to, is, yeah. That's rare. It is. That's, very uh, that's rare. rare. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Agreed. Okay. It's not like there's a hundred of those available or anything. No. So the one we lost on last night, there were nine offers and that was, believe it or not, uh, 209, 209,000. No way. Yes. 209. Yeah. How was the condition of the house? Same idea. Three bedroom, one bath. When you were putting yeah. in that offer, were you? Th I know you were working with a rock star investor. Yeah. Now, but were you thinking maybe I should just buy this? Yeah. <laughs> really? If you oh need God. a partner, if I'm here for you. Two hundred and nine thousand. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Okay. Good it's for like, them, though. It is. Yeah. Really good. Okay. And then multiple offers um, in all in all places. So from Belleville right around. Yeah. For these starter homes, just to be be specific. So anywhere in in this case, yes, we're talking low two hundreds. But I mean. Closer to Southern Ontario around the Golden Horseshoe from the 350 mark to 500, something decent, turn pretty well, turnkey. You, we're probably going into multiple offers. Uh, of, of course, unless we can catch that listing during the early week, then often a lot of people haven't gone out to see it. And if the agents are in the, the sellers are not holding offers, then maybe we can sneak an offer and get it accepted and, and move on. But okay. uh, Mike's being very kind. That's what you do regularly when you try to get an offer. Have in. To. Yeah. 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 That's the yeah. strategy. I remember when, when, uh, when um, we had first started, Mike, way back, when all of us, if we saw a property uh, in, in a city, we'd be driving from here in Oakville to maybe like 
uh, at that time it would have been Hamilton Mountain mm-hmm. a lot. Yeah. And if it was good, we were driving out there. As we were driving out there, we'd be calling an investor that we were working with saying, look, I think there's a hot one here. If I go out there, put my eyes on this thing and it's a winner, get ready, standing by the fax machine, get ready to fax. I'm yeah. going to fax you the paperwork over. You fax it right back. We're doing this now. Yes. We yeah. would put offers so fast that the real estate agents didn't even know what hit them. Yeah. Since then, everyone's more accustomed to that. Right. But uh, that's the way you got to do it. I don't know if you remember, Kevin, uh, we have an investor and uh, he was in communication with a couple from Ottawa that were moving out to Kitchener. And uh, this is they, way back or way recent? back. Okay. Yeah. They came down and I took them out because they were going to do a rent own. And uh, we went through a few homes and they said they wanted this particular property. And the investor didn't come out with us. He was busy. So they said they want this property. They had roughly, I think it was ten or $20,000 down as their down payment. Um, I go back to the investor. Good news. We found a property and they want it. Bad news is I don't like the property. So, um, it took a lot of convincing because this couple was moving back to Ottawa because the deal was they were going to be here in two months. They needed a place. They came out here quickly, wants to work with Kevin. We do the rent own. They go back to Ottawa and I tell, I, Kevin's like, do up the offer. And I'm like, Kevin, do me a favor. Just give me 48 hours. Let me see if I can find you a better property. So I went back out, found two of them, took videos of the homes, loaded them up to YouTube, Is that sent the them over to the tenants. The cat That's right. Yeah, the, the cat went door. to escape. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I remember that. I had the listings in one hand, a camera in another, and I'm walking through the house. I opened the sliding door and the cat shot across my feet from inside the house trying to get out. And as it got across one of my feet, I think it was my right foot, I threw up my right foot, cat went in the air, caught the cat delicately, put the cat back <laughs> in the house. Like on video. It, was, it, it is on video and it is on YouTube to this day. But um, yeah, so the deal was the tenants were much more happier with this particular house because it's always the house comes first. Um, these people were here, they were in a rush. They felt that they picked the best home, but in the end I just knew it wasn't the best for them and it wasn't the best investment property either. So trying to make this a win-win for everyone. So we did get a much better house in the end and everyone was happy, but uh, um yeah, I don't it's know been why. no, no. But I guess the point is that we've seen it from then. We've seen demand. However many years ago, that we're talking over a decade ago, mm-hmm. the last ten years has been insane. Um, the next ten years, with the population growth headed our way, like the big stat I always put out is that, like, look, the Toronto how it's not the Toronto Housing Authority. It's one of the economic bodies within the city of Toronto put out that population data forecast that basically trumps Ontario's forecast that says, hey, look, we're going to be growing faster than the province of Ontario thinks. The GTA they're forecasting is going to grow forty three percent from two thousand sixteen to two thousand forty one, or three million people. So we're yeah. cur- as of 2016, which is three years ago, we were at a population base of 6.7 million in the GTA. Um, and they're forecasting that we're going to 9.7 by 2041. That's absolutely insane. So my point is that if we have access to credit, we have the best banks in the world, we have access to credit, we have low interest rates. And on top of all this, if we have a massively growing population explosion happening, what's going to happen to property prices in the next 10 years? Yeah. And then because we don't want to be fooled by that, and I think something I wanted to share with everybody now is that, okay, things look rosy kind of for the next 10 years, 20 years here in this area, but it doesn't change the fact that there could be a temporary crash. And what would that look like? And I just want to share some data. And and Mike, this is what we were talking about earlier. We went back and looked at two of the biggest crashes that we're aware of, one in Canada in 1990, and then the US crash. And I just want to share some data. So the 1990 Toronto real estate crash that kind of happened right at the end of 1989, beginning of the year 1990. We looked at the data from Toronto, the Toronto Real Estate Board. And if you look at the peak price, so the peak price from the, the 1989 to the, the lowest point, um, it is a 27.6% decrease in prices. So we can round that up to 28%. So the very, very peak to the very bottom was a 28% drop. And the reason I'm sharing that is that's just something, if you wanna be aware of the worst real estate crash ever to happen in Canada, that's what we're looking at. But the interesting part is, the year before, if you bought one year before the crash, property prices didn't skyrocket much higher until the very last year. The year before, if you bought property prices to the very bottom, it looks like, and I don't have the math worked out, it looks like property prices might have dropped maybe 10% total. It's really just that froth at the very end where things came down 30%. So when you hear people talk about the great real estate crash, it was really people who bought like our father did, because we're one of the families who bought flipping properties, 
like straight up flipping, buying property straight to flip mm-hmm. um, right at the point of the crash. And that particular property, if you're listening to this, went, it was a hard crash. It was a luxury home. Um, so $750,000, we went, it went down in price to 450, um, it, within a span of four months. So that's a pretty hard fall, but that's right from the peak to the fall. But if you bought just a little bit before that, and if you bought two years before the crash, the bottom, there was no bottom for you because property prices came back down to prices two years before the crash. So I just want to be, put this into perspective. If the crash happened in 1990, it took six years for things to bottom out. But if you bought a property two years before the crash, the property price went to what you bought it at in 1987. So if you bought it two years before and it took six years, it went to 1996 for property prices to bottom, literally property prices, you didn't lose a dime because they went up in 1988 and 89 and they came back to property prices in 1987. So it's really only the people that are buying at that kind of moment that really take the biggest hit. And it took six years for property prices to bottom out, a fall of 28% as we discussed. And it took another six years for property prices to get back to where they were at the very, very peak. And then now they've greatly exceeded it, of course. But if you want to look at the whole span, it was 12 years, six years to bottom out and six years to get back up. That is, and the reason I'm sharing that, I don't know if that's, people want to hear that or not. Like it could be, I guess, scary if you're not in real estate and you hear this kind of stuff, but that's the worst case situation. That's what we're looking at, right? And the, um, I guess I shouldn't say it's the worst case situation. It could be. Weird. It's really not that bad. So it's not you that said bad, six I, years going down, six years coming up. So that's where you're at your even point. So that's 12 years. What other asset or investment can you do where you put your money in, it, it stays balanced over the 12 years, goes up, goes down, whatever, and you still make money. Because yeah, yeah. you have renters you in here. It's positive cash flow. Yeah, yeah, got no, it. No, it. doesn't even have to be positive okay, cash flow. Okay, so just, just on mortgage pay even. down even. Yeah, Equity you, gain. Sh- yeah, exactly, yeah. So, no, I agree. I think it's just because we're in real estate. I like to paint the worst picture yeah, yeah, so which that is people fair. don't think we're like just selling real estate 100%. for the idea of selling real estate. But you're right. Yeah. When you boil it down like that, yeah. It's like the price changed, but the value of you didn't lose your down payment money. Correct. And uh, as long as you didn't sell, of exactly, course, yes, and yeah. you're gaining equity through the whole time. Right. Um, I guess there's a moment where you're not gaining equity because if you bought it at like 200000 and it comes down in value, uh, your, your mortgage is going lower, but it could come underneath what uh, the amount of amount of uh, equity you have in the property. Like if you put 20% down, it could come and the drop was bigger than 20%. You could be negative equity there. You're right. But I know I'm painting the extreme. You would have to sell. uh, Yeah. Yeah. And you would have to sell. I'm painting the extreme picture. Yeah. Yeah, totally. But you're right. uh, Obviously I'm in total agreement. But then there was this other one observation that I just wanted to share with everybody that we looked at the sales volume back in 1989. And it's really interesting. The, the couple of years before 1989, the sales volume in the Toronto real estate market was 43,000 transactions, 49,000 transactions, and then it goes to 38 the year before the big crash, and then it goes down to 26,000. So the, the real estate transactions went from 38,000 the year before to 26. So that's a lot of volume. Like Basically, the real estate market seized up, but there's still 26,000 transactions going on. And the next year, in 1991, it re- rebounds right back to pre-crash at 38,000. And then the next year, 41,000. So my message on that is that even though purchase prices or property prices took six years to bottom out, the amount of activity only froze up for about a 12-month, 18-month window. And then it bounces up. And there's a couple interesting notes. I remember that time, and I know some rockstar investors that we work with remember that time as well. Part of the reason that the transaction volume came back is that some people had convinced themselves that the real estate market was going to go down forever. So they started selling in 1991 and 1992. And if you had the guts to be buying there, you were buying it like it's some of the best opportunities ever. But so it's a really weird time. The volume came back up in sales transactions, not because everybody thought the real estate market was rosy all of a sudden. It's just that a bunch of people thought, oh my gosh, I better get out. This market's going to keep falling forever. But people who went in at that time, and a whole bunch of people did based on the, the amount of transactions we're seeing, they made out like bandits, mm-hmm. right? So I guess, and they might not have timed it perfectly because if you bought in 1991 or 92, you still had another three or four years for the cycle to really bottom out, but no one's ever going to time it. Correct. If you got a good property there, you were buying not near the high of the market. You're already buying at a really good price. 
So just uh, just an observation. Um, and then I was show, I was just showing. Mike and I were just going through this together. So we looked at the Canadian. That was Canadian. So it took six years to bottom out at the very bottom. And the drop was about 28%. So we took U.S. national prices, which is never good. You know, taking an average of all prices. But it's, 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 and the reason it's never good is because the real estate market is definitely community driven. But we just wanted to see what happened in the U.S. at a national level. And it's really interesting what we found. From the top to the bottom. So the bottom took about six years to bottom out. And it was a 27% decline in average national prices in the U.S. Very similar. Very, totally similar. And then it took about five years for prices to come back up. So it didn't take 12 years. The whole cycle was about 11 years and property prices came right back up. Mm -hmm. So that to me is like fascinating that we had this thing in Toronto. It was like 28%, six years to bottom out. The U.S. national average was 27% down and six years to bottom out. So uh, the only reason I like sharing that is that's like our so far from the recent history of the last, what's that, 30 years almost. Mm -hmm. That's what our worst case scenario tells us we have to deal with as investors. Right. I don't know if that's, I, whenever we talk about this, I'm like, I don't know if that means anything to anyone or not. I just like knowing this stuff so I know what to plan for. Mm -hmm. Because then I'm like, oh, okay. If the worst case situation is a 30% fall, if I don't sell and I'm getting rent like you're talking about, Mike, it doesn't mm -hmm. really matter to me. Correct. Yeah. If you're in for the long term, it's, yeah, it's hard to really be concerned with this. Totally. Short term. Yeah. If you if you're not in this for the long term, then yeah, maybe it's valid. Totally. And and then one of the things I found myself. Or if you're uh, a flipper, especially. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. two scenarios. Yeah. There's two. That's funny you say that's two scenarios. I was just telling someone the other day. I'm like, listen, there's two things that you don't want to get caught here because if you're renting it out, it doesn't really matter. Correct. You're not selling yeah. the property. It doesn't matter. Maybe mm -hmm. you're not going to refinance it during that time. So that doesn't matter. But there's two scenarios that could be dangerous. If you're flipping properties and you get caught in this mm -hmm. cycle, yeah. it can wipe you out like it almost did our family. Right. It could completely wipe you out. Like, we were close to bankruptcy as a family mm -hmm. during that era in 1990. The second uh, thing is um, if you think you have a lot of real estate investors think they have a lot of joint venture partners. A lot of people, friends and family around them that say, hey, Mike, I know you're buying properties. Listen, if you find a good one, count me in. Mm -hmm. You know, we all as investors, you all have those buddies, right? right? Or family members and stuff. I'll, I'll give you some money, but, you know, you do it yeah. and we'll be a joint venture. All of those people during a recession or housing pro uh, crisis disappear on you. Correct. So, yeah. yeah. You know what I'm talking oh, about, yeah. right? Yeah. In two, I remember 2008. I think it was 2008. The year before, we had about, or 2006, 2007, we probably had, uh, Nick and I counted, it was either 10 or 12 investors by name on a whiteboard that told us, now's not the right time to buy. I'm going to buy when the real estate market has a crisis. Mm -hmm. And we wrote their names on a whiteboard. I'll never forget this. Right. And then 2007, 2008 hit in the US yeah. and we called them. And we're like, guys, it's pretty slow out in the Canadian market right now. No one's making offers. And out of all those people, only two um, people, one of them's an investor you work with today, mm -hmm. took action. Gotcha. The other 80% or more of that list yeah. told us, no, 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 now's not the right time to buy. Have you seen what's going on in the US? Right. Which was fascinating to me because they're the ones who told us it's not the right time to buy when price activity is hot. And then when the crap hit the fan, they also found a reason that it wasn't the right time to buy. Right. So and then, unfortunately, as the market picks up, they're often on the sideline saying, I missed the train. Yeah, I missed the train. I'm going to wait for the next one. I'm going to wait for the next crash. I can't believe I missed that one. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I was just talking to someone the other day. And you know, this is normal. It's like, why didn't I buy 10 years ago? I should have bought 10 oh, yeah. years ago. It's like we all, you're just never going to time the market. Yeah. Like you'll never time the market. That's why we like properties that pay for themselves. Like that Belleville property you're talking about or a mm -hmm. duplex in Hamilton or a, a rental in Barrie, you know, or a triplex in Brantford. It's like if these properties pay for themselves, you don't actually have to f concern yourself about timing the market. Right. You should have to be aware that these things are going to happen. And, uh, and the other thing is when crap hits the fan, you don't have access to credit. Mm -hmm. Like one of the reasons the real estate market might be tanking is that banks aren't lending. Right. So if you think you're going to magically jump into the market at that time, you're not because it's harder to get mortgages mm -hmm. and loans yeah. and that kind of stuff. So anyway, hopefully if you're listening to this, that description of the Canadian time in 1990 and the U S went through a little bit, just paints the picture a little bit of what might come our way during another real estate crisis. Nothing to concern ourselves with. This is normal. Mm -hmm. It's completely normal. Yeah. You know, when we're talking to people, and Mike, I don't know how you handle this, but sometimes people will come up to me and they say, well, Tom, the price of this is like too high mm -hmm. on this property. Yeah. And I'm like, if that's the analysis you're using, your analysis is too simple. Mm -hmm. What's the income? 
Right. So tell me the income and tell me the expenses on the property. We're investors. So if the income of this student rental or this sixplex or 12plex or legal duplex is greater than the expenses or covering the expenses, is it really, does the price point, like why are we even having this discussion here? Mm-hmm. Like when, when, when apartment building owners who, who play in the bigger space, they never talk about the price. They just look at like what they talk about capitalization rate a lot. Right. So they will just look at the income and divide it by the price. But one of the factors in deciding to them whether the property is worth it is the income. Right. They never look at the price by in and of itself. Mm -hmm. Right. But I find residential beginner real estate investors are always just so like the price is too high. That analysis is just too simple. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't know. Do you have any other ways to explain that? Or that's the basic stuff, right? It's been a moving target. And yeah, I think it's harder for investors that have been doing this for a while to wrap their heads around that this still continues to go. um, These starter homes um, in regards to their appreciation and what we're buying them for now, which is basically double what we were paying 10 years ago. But I also talked to the tenants. What the investors are dealing with, the tenants are dealing with the exact same thing. Yeah, that's a good... Property prices are double, the rent's double. So... It comes back to the numbers. And you know what the funny thing is? I don't think any of us have ever. So I've ha- I had to help a family recently find a rental property in Oakville. We were going into multiple offers on rentals. Um, I, you know, I had seven families come out to this property. You know what I didn't do? Ask if anybody wanted to pay more. Yeah, I'm sure it. there's some investors that have, but yeah, yeah, like here I had seven buying units at the house and it maybe there's a tactic there that we could have used to, you know, for it to go into multiple offers. But in the end, I you know, wasn't worried about gouging anyone. I just wanted a good family in that property. Oh, but so you're saying those of us who ask for more are just gouging <laughs> no. people. I'm not saying I would yeah. do that. I just may or may not know people who've done that. Mike. Right, right. <laughs> but uh, interesting, because that, if that was seven different agents representing seven different families, I guarantee you that there would have been something there to sweeten the pot, maybe six months uh, upfront rent or higher higher monthly rent price. And it's true. And you know, uh, we know stories of renters who are not leaving properties because I am, I'm sure you own some properties and Nick mm-hmm. and I own some properties where we know we're renting out the properties at now well below market rent. I have and, investors that are renters that are buying properties, but staying in their rental because it'd be less than the mortgage they'd pay for their no own home. No freaking way. Yes way. That's yeah. so smart. I love that. Big time. Holy shit. You're right. Cause <laughs> if they are renting for a long time now, yeah. they have a great rental rate. Right. And they're using their money to buy rental properties exactly. to rent out to other people. Exactly. Holy shit. Yeah. Who are these people? Let's give them <laughs> badges people. of honor. Yeah. Holy gold stars for everybody. <laughs> we should keep gold star stickers in here and give them to ours. Like, oh my gosh, gold star time. <laughs> Holy shit. I love that. Yeah. No, you're totally right. But we have that. And I'm sure you mm-hmm. have tenants that have that too. Like, I, And some properties, you know, we keep talking about cash flowing properties and cash flow all the time. We're going to have to change that narrative a little bit going forward in Toronto. There is no doubt. Mm-hmm. But I just don't want people to dismiss that cash flow um, isn't possible because, again, if you're in Toronto, a lot of people think it's not possible. But look at your Belleville example. Mm-hmm. I know people do, doing Airbnb stuff that I can't believe the amount of money. I know uh, they're, they're able to generate. Right. A few podcasts ago, we had a guy in here who's built a tiny home and parked it on his friend's lot somewhere, and he's mm-hmm. renting it out for a crazy amount. Um, legal duplexes or second suites or, or you know however we're calling them, yeah. those properties are generating cash flow. Mm-hmm. Student rental properties um, in almost all communities uh, depending on the, maybe not all of them, but they have a high most. opportunity. Most yeah. are, are, are earning cash flow. Right. And then now with interest rates coming down, mm-hmm. I mean, it, I think it's too simple to just say, oh, property prices are too high. There's no opportunities. You just have to get a little bit creative. For sure. You know, it's it's yeah. too easy just to kind of dismiss it. Oh, real estate missed the boat. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, if that's your analysis, then forget it. You have missed the boat. But right. like the rest of us are going to take action. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, Okay, I feel like we're going on a little rant there. And usually, uh, yeah, I, I wanted to talk about one. The, the biggest thing about, I think most people are misunderstanding, and we're putting a report together on this that we hope to release sometime over the next few weeks, is that we're collecting all the immigration data coming into Ontario and the population growth data that we have. We're comparing it to the rest of the world. And literally at this point, I want to challenge anyone, because I'm interested in the, this isn't like a, a I'm trying to prove I'm right. I just genuinely do not know, but I cannot find another city in North America going through the population and development growth explosion that we're having right now in the entire Golden Horseshoe, which would be like like Belleville, Ontario, to the east of Toronto, to um, Niagara Falls, the Golden Horseshoe, has 9 million people. 9 million. 
So that population explosion that I talked about was their analysis was only the GTA taking it from 6.7 to uh, 9.7. We're already at 9 million people in the Golden Horseshoe. If another 3 million people, just the GTA population growth happens, we're going to 12 million people in this area Mm -hmm. over the next 20 years. It's likely going to be more. Like this area with the amount of development, Mike, you and I were looking at a video today about all the condos that have been developed in the core of Toronto (laughs) over the last like 10 years. Yeah. Like that's just shocking. That's just just Toronto proper. We're not even talking about like Hamilton or Oshawa or Barrie or Kitchener. Right. Like we're in the middle. And I think this is when you're in the middle of it, you don't see the forest for the trees kind of thing. True. So I don't know. Now I'm just preaching to the choir. (laughs) You're like nodding and saying true. I'm like, yeah, Yeah. this is so, so right. Anyway, um, there's one thing else I wanted to bring up. um, And it's on one of my personal favorite topics. Mr. Uh, Mike Zormo. It's on gold. Okay. I was listening to a podcast the other day. And this podcast said, uh, it was a good podcast. It was one of Tim Ferriss's podcasts and he had a financial planner on there and they were just making fun of gold. And I thought, oh my gosh, I really want to be on this podcast. And I really, I literally pulled over to the side of the road and I started documenting all this guy's insults on gold. And here's, awesome. here's what he said. He said, gold doesn't pay income. And uh, I agree, it doesn't pay income. Mm-hmm. And then he said, "What are?" Well, they both agreed and they laughed. They said, what are you going to do with gold if you have to use it? You're going to shave off slivers of it and give it to people and as payment for stuff? Yeah. And they kind of laughed at that. I'm a big Tim Ferriss fan, by the way. So I'm not, this isn't attacking him. I was just right. like, damn, they need to be educated. <laughs> um, the, what was the next thing they said? What will the economy look like if, if, if it comes to gold? You know, is everyone going to have guns too? Mm-hmm. You know, and they were kind of like, oh my gosh, you know, like golden guns, like holy crap. And then it was like, um, the only value in gold is that someone else will hopefully pay you more for it. Mm-hmm. Like there's no other value. That, that's the value, right? right? So these were their, these were their attacks. And I thought, okay, this is really interesting because I think they're missing the boat at, in all these four points. The first point is that it doesn't pay income. I just want to be clear if anyone, no one here needs to rush out and buy gold or silver. I think we all should be adding assets to our lives. Me and Nick personally, Mike, I know you're the same. Add good income properties to your life. You know, uh, work on your career, start your own business, get your own clientele, do all that kind of stuff. That's very valuable. But at Mm -hmm. some point, you may want to save up enough money that you're like, oh, I can plan for other scenarios and I might consider buying gold and silver. The only reason I would ever consider buying gold and silver is as an insurance policy on the financial system. Mm -hmm. That's it. So if all my money is in the banks and the financial system, gold and silver acts as an insurance policy for me against anything going wrong with that. I can't see why I wouldn't have an insurance policy on everything I'm doing. And that's the best sort of insurance policy. But I want to address these four points specifically that it doesn't. First one is that it doesn't pay income. Gold doesn't pay income because gold is actual money. Money in and of itself doesn't pay income. Right. You only pay income on something if you take a risk. So for example, A $10 bill doesn't pay income. Everyone considers it money. We can all argue whether it's currency or real money or not, fiat currency, whatever, but it doesn't pay income. When you go to the bank and you put it in the uh, checking account, you get a tiny little bit of interest. So it's earning income for you. Mm -hmm. You're getting that interest because you took the risk of taking your $10 and giving it to the bank. In exchange for that risk, albeit low, you get a tiny amount of income. Right. And that's how the world works. Mm-hmm. Money in and of itself was never designed to produce income. Gold is, to me, the purest form of money. It's an insurance against all other forms of money. It doesn't pay income because money does not pay income. You take, you only get income when you take risk with your money. Right. Low risk, like a checking account. High risk, maybe a stock or whatever you do, a stock that pays a dividend or something like that, mm-hmm. right? So that's the first point, not designed to, to pay income. The second point that you shave off slivers to pay for stuff is that these guys have never really looked at other countries around the world. So when, you, when Yugoslavia went through its problems, nobody got, and, and if you're not aware, Yugoslavia between like the year 1990 and 95 or 96, don't hold me to those dates, exactly went through hyperinflation, their currency basically went to shit. And, um, Nobody was running around shaving off slivers from whatever gold they had. They actually kept their gold as the only way to hold value in their lives. What they were doing is when they were getting paid, and I know this because I've talked to people there directly during this period, is when they were doing work and getting paid, they would literally run, if they got paid for that week's work, they would literally run to the store and buy whatever goods they could from the store that same day because the value of their currency was going down so fast, Mm -hmm. they needed to buy goods right away because the next day prices were going to be higher. 
Nobody right. was going and taking slivers of gold, and that doesn't really happen. Mm-hmm. There's other forms of currency during these periods. Right. You're not going around taking sli- you You hold your gold as a way to protect your wealth. During those times, the last thing you're doing is shaving off slivers. You're basically tucking your gold away and saying, after all the, the shit hits the storm and the shit that's hitting the fan passes, one of the only things left of value in my life that I'm going to have if I don't have some properties is these pieces of gold. Right. So it's, it's a really a store of value. They're not shaving off any slivers. And they said, what will economy look like if it comes to gold? Like, is everyone going to have guns and stuff? No, that's not what happened in Yugoslavia. There was wars that was like starting the hyperinflation period during that, that period of time. It just means that everyone's rushing around trying to get rid of their dollars as, as fast as humanly possible. And if that's the case, you want something else to hold your wealth, mm-hmm. hold your purchasing power, protecting you financially. So that's kind of what the world looks like. Not everyone has guns and is running around <laughs> shooting each other, unless maybe it's Nerf guns. We're not, no one during those times is running around shooting their neighbor down the street or whatever. And then they said the value is some is is uh, is what someone else will hopefully pay you for it, right? That you have this thing and someone else will hopefully pay you more. Yeah, that's exactly the value. Mm-hmm. For the entire history, gold has been a valued precious metal. It's a store of wealth so that, I'll put it to you this way. I know of a family in Bosnia. The only way they got out of the country of Bosnia is during that period of hyperinflation, the priest took that uh, piece of gold from this family, and in exchange for that gold, they smuggled this family out of Bosnia for them. Think about that. Yeah. So yeah, someone gave a lot of value in exchange for the gold. That that is what gold does. It holds its value. That is. So when they're saying the only thing, it, it, its only value is that someone else will hopefully pay you more for it. Yeah, that that that's the whole thing. And then we have thousands of years of history that proves that people pay for its value, mm-hmm. right? Um, so anyway, I don't know. That's what I wanted to share about gold. It basically holds its value when everything else in the world is going crazy. So uh, one of the best ways I like to think about it when I talk to somebody about this that I like still don't get it. I'm like, look, listen, in the 1930s, if you had um, one gold coin, a one ounce gold coin, you could probably buy a good suit for it. Right. Right. Today, in the year 2019, if you have one good gold coin, you one can nice suit. you can get one nice suit. Yeah. That's all I mean. Mm-hmm. It hasn't changed its value. Whereas when you bought a, a dollar, like a good suit in uh, 1930s with dollars, maybe cost you, I don't know what it would cost you back then, maybe 50 bucks. Mm-hmm. But now a good suit's going to cost you like 1300 bucks right. or a really good suit, right? Yeah. So the dollar has fallen in value. Mm-hmm. It used to take 50, now it takes a lot more than 50, whereas the gold coin kept its value. That's right. it. Yeah. That's its purpose. That's the whole game. Mm-hmm. So if anyone knows Tim Ferriss, let him know <laughs> that we need to talk because he needs to be clear on it. He's a good guy. He needs to get his act together on the gold. <laughs> anyway, that's my rant on the on the gold and silver stuff. But, uh, that's good. Before we... <laughs> thanks. <laughs> Mike's just looking at me like, would you just stop ranting about this shit? Anyway, uh, on, the, on, the, on the real estate market crash stuff, when you're dealing with investors, do you... Uh, is there a common thread that people are like, well, Mike, I'm worried about this or I'm worried about that or is everybody different? I th- Yeah, I think a lot of people are different. 99% of... The people that are get me properties. <laughs> yeah, I got people it. are so looking sold on like yeah, real estate. Exactly. Uh, why yeah. the investors you work with are looking mm. to replace income, have assets in their life? Is there a common thread, or is it also over all over no, the map? I think people also worried about their employment too. Like, what am I going to do if my employer, uh, you know, pushes me out, or you know, what am I going to do for my children? Is not is a new one recently in the last few years that people are more concerned of how are my children going to be able to afford a house. Um, and then so, how are you breaking down there now? Like if someone comes to you, are you working with their goals around cash flow, appreciation? Do, is there a systematic way that you it, like to say, okay, let's look at this? Yeah, it's individual. So if, if cash flow is of most important interest to them, then that's what we're going to work on. And that's usually where somebody's going to maybe, the husband or wife are going to pull back from their job. Or maybe the husband or wife have been recently let go. So they need to replace that income with some positive cash flow properties. So we'll look at that. Um, but yeah, it's it's more of a personal uh, thing that we figure out when we're sitting down and chatting with one another. And then new investors that you work with now, are they surprised to see the multiple offers that you're dealing with? Um, I don't think so. I don't think so. I, I, I think um, once, ah, it's tough. It's tough. Yeah. I find, I, 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 I find, cause when you told me five weeks ago that we were seeing yeah, multiple offers, I was like shocked. I, I, I was think like, holy yeah, shit, yeah. really? I think if it was people looking in November, December, and then maybe stayed out of the market for a bit and didn't see this coming, like 
you know, they've uh, came out of the woods in the last two, three weeks. Yes. But for the people that, you know, we've been working with over the past few weeks trying to get stuff, you saw it coming. Yeah. They're not surprised. Not surprised. Yeah, got no. it. And yeah, now that, uh, hopefully though, with the, with the better weather, you know, I see the flowers outside blooming, um, that we'll get more inventory on the market. Yeah. I'm, I, we, I feel it's like, out there. I, I feel like every spring we say the same <laughs> thing, man, it's getting yeah. harder. And the, yeah. the crazy part is we all say how hard it is to get investment properties in the year 2019 compared to the year 2009. Mm -hmm. Like that's something we talk about in here all the time. For sure. My question to all of us is what happens in the year 2029? Right. For sure. If the last 10 years went by with a snap of the fingers. Yeah. In 2029, when we're sitting here chatting about this stuff, are we going to look back on 2019 and go, hold on a second. If we knew that the Canadian uh, market was the place to be, this much population growth was coming in here, that there might be a correction, but if we're smart, we can get through it and survive if we have properties that pay for themselves. Right. Why did we not load up harder? And this is a question I'm asking of myself too. Mm -hmm. You know, we're buying the new commercial stuff for Rockstar and then Nick and I are back in the market for some other stuff as soon as we get through that. Yeah. Um, it's like, hmm, did we really go too easy? Like, uh, I guess my question is, are, if we see this population growth coming here, are we all missing the opportunity by not be put, by not even going harder? Mm -hmm. You know, and I know if you're listening to this podcast and knowing our story, you think that's a very self-serving thing to say. And yeah, I, I can understand that because we own a real estate brokerage, but I'm being genuine and sincere. Like, yeah, for sure. Are we missing like the opportunity of a lifetime here? Mm -hmm. Like, is this Toronto's moment that we're 10 years into a beautiful growth cycle, but we got another 20 years left to go? Right. You know, and I guess time will tell. So, Mike, we're gonna have to come back here with tequila, <laughs> Don Julio, nineteen forty-two, preferably in ten years. Anything else we wanted to share? No, I think I think uh, um, uh, something that's been interesting too in the last, I think this year particularly, I think the two thousand dollar rental price has that 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 ceiling's been broken. Like it's not uncommon now for I know in Toronto. So describe the home, uh, like what yeah, kind of single family, a three bedroom, maybe one or a two bathroom bungalow. In about. Uh, yeah, uh, Cambridge, Kitchener, Hamilton, St. Catharines, you know, prop properties that we're paying for, 400, 450,000 for, uh, most rents are 2,000 plus. Straight now. rent. Straight rent, just straight rent plus utilities. Like I know that's, you know, the the norm for Toronto. It's it's 2,000 plus, but it hasn't been like that um, for these outlying areas. And uh, yeah, so it's not uncommon now for us and, to be. And so to give everyone perspective, what was it three, four years ago? Ah, 1650, yeah. 1700. So it's huge growth. It, it really is. Yeah. yeah. No, percentage wise, that's massive. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's crazy. It's man. like a dollar ninety nine, two dollars. So on a rent to own on the same, and I know we're doing less, the yeah. reason I, I'm going to say we're doing less rent to owns with mm -hmm. investors, just because most investors never want to sell properties anymore. Right. Like forget right. it. But yeah. if you were to do a rent to own, that means on that house, you're going to get 23, 23, 50, 24, 24, 50. Yeah. At easily, least I yeah. would think. 25, 26. Yeah. I know yeah. somebody in here is doing one, a little higher priced home though, but mm -hmm. I know they did 2750, I believe. Right. So, yeah. um, and one of, uh, I, I know a bunch of people in here who are doing rent to owns, um, we're, we're finding tenants for those so quick because um, people can't qualify for the lending because the banks have made it so difficult. Right. And we have less investors doing it. Less, so there's less people in Ontario doing it because right. more are doing long-term buy and hold stuff. As investors, yeah. As investors. But, but the rent owns still a really nice strategy. It is, When done sure. right and like yeah. in the realm of fairness for everyone, the investor and the tenant, right. where you're not like charging some insane amount Correct. of rent and stuff. So it kind of works for both sides. 100%. Yeah, it's a good strategy it's still. A, yeah. All right, thanks, man. Okay. Tequila shots all around. <laughs> Hey everyone, it's Tom Kradz again. So hopefully you enjoyed that episode. And uh, if you are listening to this and you want to check out some real estate uh, education for yourself, you can come to our class and register to, for that. I'm stumbling all over myself here at CanadianRealEstateTraining.com. That's www.CanadianRealEstateTraining.com. That class that we give is always full. It's our introductory class to real estate investing. Nick and myself are there. We stay around after the class to answer any questions. We really enjoy giving that class. We've been doing it for a long time so you can check out that class and get registered for it at canadianrealestatetraining.com that's it for now until next time your life your terms